Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist and author and originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director and our studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share with you the tip of the week about how we insist to keep our magical and wishful thinking, which can hurt us actually more than they can be useful at times. And then I'll bring you Robert Raymond Riopel. He is an international best-selling author, an app designer, an entrepreneur, and trainer who has um, spent more than 18 years traveling around the world, sharing his passion with more than half a million people. He is the author of Success Left the Clue. So we're going to talk about his book. I answer one of your questions of what do I do when I eat to stuff down my fear in the Ask Me segment. And then I will chat with Dr. Susan Campbell. She is the author of 11 books on relationships and conflict resolution. She leads seminars internationally and has appeared on CNN, uh, CNN's Newsnight and Good Morning America. Dr. Campbell has also directed a Think Tank, a run a profit, a nonprofit organization, consulted to Fortune 500 companies and guest lectured at Harvard, Stanford, and UCLA business schools. Today, we'll be talking about her latest book, From Triggered to Tranquil, which we all need. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, podcast, and connect with me through Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, any of those. Um, and um, let me know. I love to hear from you. Love to uh, hear about your suggestions, comments, uh, questions. I love, I want to hear your, uh, give me your questions so I can answer them on the show. But first, here's the tip of the week. many of the negative beliefs uh, that impact our lives before. Today, I like to explore beliefs that appear to be positive, yet since they don't prove realistic and um, they end up creating a negative impact. We all have experienced magical thinking in our childhood. Let me define it first. Magical thinking is the belief that one's own thoughts, wishes, or desires can influence the external world with no action on our part. Beliefs such as a four-year-old believing that if they close their eyes and ask Santa for a wish, it will appear. We also have wishful thinking, which we tend to see the world the way we want it, regardless of the real evidence, such as I can eat whatever I want with no consequences, or my parents should have been another. One type of wishful thinking or magical thinking is that human beings should be or are always kind, always loving, cooperative, and if you love them, they will reciprocate with love and loyalty. Or you could have completely the opposite too, right? Human beings are harsh, they're cruel, they're always out to get you. So any type of like solid uh, one-sided belief system 
Another type of wishful magical thinking is my mate should be and is a person who loves me unconditionally, gives me whatever I want, whatever I want effortlessly and without me needing to tell them anything. As long as they love me, they should just know what it is that I want and give it to me even before I think of it. I shouldn't even think of it. So as you're hearing me saying those two sentences, you may not be aware that you also subscribe to these types of wishful thinking and possibly many more. How can you be sure? Well, let's see. Do you get shocked, upset, feel betrayed, hurt when other human beings are unkind, lie, cheat, and undermine you? Do you get hurt and angry when your mate does not know what you want? Do you take it personally? Well, it is usually when the hurt is examined that you can become aware of an underlying magical belief or wishful thinking that is surfaced. When a dog barks or a lion growls or a tree falls, you may be alarmed, it may be an inconvenience, or you may want to protect yourself from it immediately. But have you noticed that when someone around you lies, cheats, or belittles you, the hurt is different and it becomes personal. It's not just that you have to take care of yourself or um, protect yourself. No, no, no. It becomes personal. Could it be that you hold a different general belief condition or parameters for humans, animals, vegetation, or objects in relation to you? Could it also be a form of generalization? When a dog bites, then the fear caused may create a generalization that all dogs bite without this fact being true. When one partner has done something that you did not expect, the hurt generalizes the belief that all people who get close will do something to hurt you. But the wishful thinking that all human beings should not hurt others creates another layer to the hurt. In order to feel safe, there's a need to generalize and project the wish onto all that is out there. In order to protect and feel secure, there's a need to generalize the threat of harm to be alert. The two opposing beliefs create a dilemma and a paradox within ourselves. This dichotomy makes confusing feelings and therefore mixed messages in communication with others. Through the awareness integration path, you can become aware of your wishful thinkings, magical thinkings that might jeopardize your relationship with others, creating a vision, working toward it and creating it with others in a great sense of accomplishment that is reality-based and sustainable. Living in fantasy and thinking it's real will help, will hurt you every day. I was talking to someone this morning and she, she kept saying, I wanna do something, give me a formula that I can give it across. And it's like, well, the first thing is we gotta see when the thought shows up to do a reality check and see if my thought has any based on reality, because the solution is not from the thought. The solution is if it's real, then I can find a solution out there. If it's just my, my thought process and it does, it's not valid and it's not real, then what I can do is to shift the thought to match what is out there in reality. And when it is reality. And if it's a problem and I need to shift it or cooperate with it or uh, co-create something else out of it, then it becomes an action-oriented concept outside of myself. 
So it's more mostly important to have those observational skills. And for more observational skills and creation skills into your life, go to my book, Life Reset, the Awareness Integration Path to Create the Life You Want. Thank you. everyone. I'm Dr. Sujan Zane, and I am excited to have Robert Feynman Riopel with us. He is an international best-selling author, app designer, entrepreneur, and trainer who has spent the past 18 years traveling around the world sharing his passion. He has also shared the stage with and trained many of the top trainers and thought leaders in the world today. With his high energy and heartfelt style, Robert draws on his journey from humble beginnings to financial freedom at the age of 32 to inspire individuals and to tap in into their greatness, realizing that he is not the only person that struggles. Um, he finds the clues in, in the, every individual and uh, creates the possibility for them to move forward. He's the author of Success Left a Clue. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this interview and ready to have a little bit of fun. Just a little bit. Awesome. <laughs> so from nothing to riches at age 32, freedom. First of all, I think that one of the conversations that people usually have, I have, is what is this concept of financial freedom? You know, the word freedom shows up and then, you know, we're like, <gasps> and then was like, well, how or what? What is a freedom when we talk about financial freedom? Well, I'm glad you asked it that way because something that you said earlier is what most people think from nothing to riches. But financial freedom actually has nothing to do with being rich and a multimillionaire, as an example. You know, there's an equation that says when your passive income, which is money that works without you, business that works without you, when that is greater than your expenses, you're actually financially free meaning you don't have to work if you don't want to, and you can still pay for your lifestyle. So when my wife and I were able to go from being over $150,000 in personal debt, we had a lot of expenses and we didn't know what passive income was. So there's no way we we're going to have, we would work the rest of our life. But when we learned how to create financial success through creating or buying passive incomes, getting money working for us, and we dramatically reduced our expenses, because we had that keeping up with the Joneses attitude. You know, we thought we, hey, we're successful. We're Domino's pizza franchisees. We live in a resort community. We have to have a boat. We have to have two cars. We, have, we had all these expenses that we couldn't afford, but to have the appearance we were trying to keep up. So lots of debt, no passive income. And what changed that allowed us to create financial freedom is we dramatically reduced our debt. What did we not need? Um, it was a difference between what we wanted versus what we needed. Because we all want great things, but we asked ourselves, what did we not need right now that could reduce those expenses? And we took a hard look. And at the same time, we created some passive incomes. And so within nine months, the two of those surpassed. Now, we weren't wealthy, Dr. Fujian. We weren't, but we were financially free. And what that gave us, though, was now we went from having to work 60, 70 hours a week in our stores just to earn a living. We freed up those 60, 70 hours a week where we didn't have to work anymore. And then that's when we started focusing on wealth. And so what I, I love to help people understand is don't think of going for wealth first when you're stressed out, trying to pay bills, not sure where your income is going to come from. Get financial freedom first. Once you've got the t 
time freedom that it gives you, then create um, focus on creating wealth and watch how much quicker that comes. And that's what happened for us. That's a beautiful way of putting it and the simplest way that I've ever heard. I've, you know, I've been a therapist for 30 years. I've done my shows and entertainment shows and talked to authors and all of that with so many years, almost 20 some years. This is the simplest way, easiest way that I've heard that notion being explained. So thank you for that. It's like step by step moving forward with that. And then in your book, you also talk after that step is then there to dream. Because when you have some time to dream, <laughs> then implement it. Then yeah. you could dare to dream. So share about uh, you know the steps that you, the, the clues that you put in, in your book about how to go through this step. Yeah, you know, and a great friend of mine and the gentleman who did the forward to my book, the amazing Les Brown. Mimi Brown's baby boy, Les Brown, you gotta be hungry. You know, at 77, he's still transforming lives. And what he says is it's not that we set our goals too high and we miss them. It's that we set them too low and we hit them. And that ends up keeping us playing a mediocre life. And so one of the first step in my book is not just to dream, but to dream big. Because when we were children, everything was a possibility. We had no limitations. We could be whoever we wanted. But then as we start to grow up, society teaches us to be realistic. You don't have the right education to do that. You can't be present because you didn't come from the right family. Whatever all these dreams start getting squashed and we start dreaming bigger or smaller and smaller. So I want people to give themselves permission to start dreaming big again. And of course, a fear comes up. Yeah, but Robert, what if I don't attain my dreams? Chances are you won't attain a lot of them the way you think you will. But if you don't dream at all, you're held back. And so a lot of my dreams never come true the way I thought they would. But I'm still further ahead than people that don't dream at all, if that makes sense. And so dream big. You know, here I am. I'm aerodynamic. You know, I'm not bald, but I am aerodynamic. And I walk 20% faster than most people because I don't have the wind resistance. <laughs> so pretend you've got a genie in front of you. And I could say, if you're clear on your dream and your wish and you're passionate about enough about going for it, what would you want? I'll help you make it come true. That's the way I want you to think. I want you to be willing to give yourself permission to do that. I really like what you said. Many times um, I work with people who have, um, they're wealthy enough or healthy enough that um, they go, their depression becomes an existential depression, not necessarily a situational depression or things that are going on in their life, which is a struggle, but it mo- it's like what you said, they dream, they get it. And they're like, okay, now what? What do yeah. I do now? Like, who am I now? So they go into a lot of existential conversations. And one of the things that you said, which is dream bigger than, than you, your possibility of attaining them, dream bigger than your lifetime, could even mm. get there because it's it, it's a concept that you're consistently moving forward, knowing yes. you are putting a dent in all of the bigger pictures, but it's something that is way bigger than cha- just the normal challenges of life for you. Yeah, which, and think of yeah, think of why clues, which is look yeah. for the lesson in everything you do. Yes, absolutely. And if you look at all the statistics, most people they dream of retiring at say 55 or 65. And then the ones that don't have a dream to continue from there. I look at the word retired. It just means I'm tired again. (laughs) So I don't want to be retired. I want to have a passionate life. 
And if you look at the statistics, the people that dream and focus on getting to retirement, the moment they do, they pass away a few years later because they never extended their dreaming. They're like, I achieved my dream. So it is that now what? And they don't have hobbies. They get bored, They whatever it is. Whereas the people who say, you know what? I'm here. And while I'm on this planet, I've, I'm living my life to the fullest. They're the ones that tend to go further and further. And once they reach that, say, retirement, they have a bigger dream in front of them that they're excited to dive into. And I've been retired a few times and I keep coming out of retirement because I'm like, I get bored easy. <laughs> I don't want, you can only sit so long in the hot tub. <laughs> you can only golf so many games. I want, my passion is to help people live their passion, identify it and live it. So that gets me going where I jump out of bed in the morning going, yeah, I'm ready for the day. Even though I haven't had to work financially for a lot of years. I have to work because of my passion and that's what gets me going. And that's what gets me excited. That's why dreams are so important. And in your uh, book, you talk about how to find your passion. So share about uh, how to find passion. A lot of people I work with, uh, they're like, they hear this, you know, follow your passion. And then many of them say like, I don't have one. I don't even know Mm -hmm. what it looks like. You know, I've, I've, Um, I've grown in a space where they told me what to do this, go to school, you got to go 12 years to school, then you got to go like four years to school again. I don't even know what I want to do, but I got to go through school again anyway, and you know, accumulate 150 to $200,000 of student debt for something that I come out and I don't still know what to do. I work with a lot of teens, I mean, 20s, young adults, which they did go through the path that the world said, this is what you got to go through. And then they come out and was like, no clue. I have no idea what I want to do. Um, so if you could help uh, people understand what, you know, where is it that they need to look in order to find their passion? Well, I, I'll say it like this. Don't try and figure it out. Let it out. Because the easy, and, and, and I'm, what I'm going to say, probably some people, their mind will go, it can't be that simple. And please hear me, it can. I've personally taught over half a million people in live trainings. I know it works. Is start looking at what you enjoy in life. What do you lose track of time of when you're doing it? And of course, the mind will come up and go, no, no, I can't do that. I can't make money doing that because we've been taught, you know, like a starving artist. I love singing, but a starving artist. You know how many people don't make it? Don't worry about that. Start just tapping into what is it you really love doing? that you lose the track of time. And that'll start giving you insights of what it is that your passion is. Don't worry about the negative talk, why you can't do it, why it's not realistic, why you were taught it wasn't possible. Let that go, just make a list saying, if I, was, if I have extra time, what do I love doing? And just start writing it down. You know, what have I always dreamed of being able to do? Write that down with no judgment and then learn how you can make money doing what you love. And that's one of my specialties is teaching people because I can pretty much take any passion and show people how to make money doing what they love. Because how many people do exactly what you said? Well, I've been told I have to do this. This is the job I need to do to support my family. And they wake up miserable and they spend 40 plus hours a week being miserable. Let's help you become passionate and make money at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly the route I took. I went to school and I changed, I think, 12 majors. And uh, I still came out and then I went and had, uh, you know, worked in companies, 
then I uh, became high executive in company. Then I let it all go and I became uh, a flower designer. I had that, like the top uh, Los Angeles flower design company. So I started going into uh, courses, uh, like self-progress courses. And I'm like, that's the passion. Like I can like time mm -hmm. this. And then I went back and I saw that throughout my life, I was the person like everybody came and sat and talked about their stuff and about their relationship. And I'm like, that was like my natural essence. And I never knew that that yes. was natural essence. And then it's like, okay, how do I turn in this to a profession? And obviously the therapist was <laughs> already there. I just needed to go through it. Uh, so that's exactly how I got to find and live my passion. And truly until today, if you still told me, like, if you could don't do anything else except what you wanted to do all day, I would still say, you know, I love to sit one on one with people and go, you know, kind of like chat about life. So, yeah, that's truly like it doesn't matter whether I get paid or not. I like getting paid, but it doesn't well, matter. let's be clear about that. Let's be clear about that. I love training and I would train for free, but I choose that I like to get paid for doing what I do. <laughs> So in your book, you also talk about as you find your greatness, as you find your passion and all of that, choose not to be your greatest obstacle mm. because you can be. Yes. And, and part of that is trying, what do we think? We have to do it on our own. And that comes, Dr. Fujian, from school, if you think about it, because you're taught, figure it out on your own. Don't copy someone else. That's cheating. Don't, you know, and it's just, so then we go into the real world and we go, oh, look, that person's done this and it's worked. And our mind goes, no, I'll need to reinvent the wheel because I can't follow what they did. I, that would be cheating. And we wonder why we have this battle inside of our heads. And so one of the greatest things you can do is find a mentor or someone to model. Mm -hmm. Find someone who's accomplished what you want to accomplish and find out how they did it. Now, it takes creativity sometimes and it takes tenacity when you're finding a mentor model, because some mentors you just can't get in touch with, maybe because they're passed on, like say Napoleon Hill, but look at the work he's left in his legacy that you can learn from. Or one of my mentors, when I wanted to be a trainer, I went to my mentor and I said, will you mentor me? And he said, I'm sorry, I don't have time to do one-on-one -on -one and it would cost you about a million dollars. And I was pissed. I was upset because I'd been volunteering for him. I'd been helping out. And I'm like, I'm never going to volunteer again. My wife let me vent. She goes, wrong answer. I'm like, what do you mean wrong answer? She goes, if I get this straight, you're upset at him for speaking his truth and you can't handle it. And I'm like, and she goes, and do we have an extra million dollars to spend right now? And I'm like, no. She goes, then how do we make it a reality? She goes, when we're volunteering, are you learning from? I'm like, well, of course. She goes, then we volunteer more. And because we stepped up our volunteering, he put me on stage one day for five minutes to help him out. And this is why I say in the book, five minutes can change your life. Because from that five minutes, it anchored in that this was my passion. Next thing you know, I'm helping him do bring the students back after breaks. Also, I'm doing some data. I'm co-training with him. And then I was the very first protege of his to ever lead one of his trainings without him even in the city. And from there, I've gone on to tra train not only half a million students, but I've also trained hundreds of students to teach what he teaches. And I've trained thousands of trainers around the world because I found a way to be mentored from one of the best in the world. And so quit trying to do it on your own. Find the people who have accomplished it. Look for what worked for them. But more importantly, look at, look at the mistakes to avoid because that'll get you the success even quicker.
And then you also share about own your greatness. And I think this is one of the mm -hmm. biggest, um, biggest lessons that anyone can have, which, because we, um, we tend to dream about being great, but we tend to, in our head, constantly put us put ourselves down. Like the relationship that we have, you know, it's almost like if you, if if you, the myth is that if you um, own your greatness, then you'll be a narcissist. Versus, then therefore you have to constantly put yourself down, which is such a myth because a narcissism don't see their greatness. Actually, they flaunt yeah, their yeah. greatness, but they don't see it. They don't feel it. So the owning your greatness is a whole different experience is being responsible for it. So share about mm -hmm. that with us. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you everywhere in the world. One thing consistently I've noticed for people is low self-esteem, yeah. imposter syndrome, not being willing to own it. So what I love to tell people is own your greatness with confidence, not arrogance. And the people who are arrogant are the ones, if you dig down deep and you, understand this because you, you know human behavior you've talked to a lot of people the ones who get arrogant are usually ones that are trying desperately to cover up what's deep down the low self-esteem inside themselves so they're trying to overprove themselves and so when it comes to there's that saying if you had a friend that treated you the way you treat yourself they wouldn't be your friend for very long mm -hmm. but yet we take it from ourselves. so one of the first things i tell people is learn to be more gentle with yourself yes and this is, again, one of the reasons it's so important to surround yourself with not like-minded people, but growth-minded people. People that when you fall, they will help pick you up. People mm -hmm. that when you're doing well, they'll be your greatest cheerleader. But more importantly, they're the people that are also willing to have those tough conversations with you when needed. And that, again, it comes back to quit trying to do it on your own, right? And so when you surround yourself with these kind of people, they're going to be able to sit there and, and look, it might be something where you're feeling so low that you phone a friend up and you just go, can you tell me a few things you appreciate about me? Yeah. And it could be something as simple as a conversation like that, because people see in us what we don't see in ourselves. And if the other kind of spin to that is if you are looking at something, you're feeling low, ask yourself, if I had a friend feeling that same way, what would I tell them right now? And then tell yourself that. Yes. And these are little tips that you can do to just own your greatness with that confidence, because the world is waiting for you to share your gift. And I don't say that to pressure people because you're sharing your gift may impact one life. And that's the life sitting in your seat right now. Yes. But you don't know. And it's, it's we think that um, greatness means we have to be helping hundreds, thousands, millions of people. But what people don't realize is every time you meet someone, every time you're around someone, one of two things is happening. You're either affecting them with your greatness or you're infecting them with your mediocrity. And my belief is one of the biggest problems we have on this planet right now is way too many people are playing mediocre lives. They haven't given themselves permission to just be themselves. And you don't even have to say a word. If you're owning your greatness, the vibration is going around to the people around you. Have you ever been sitting in a restaurant and someone walks in the restaurant and it's like everybody's attention is drawn to that person? And they haven't even said a word. It's just, you can just tell that they, there's something amazing about them. And that's because they're confident with who they are. Yeah. And that's one of the most beautiful things about people. Absolutely. Success left a clue. Robert, mm -hmm. Raymond, Riopel, everyone. Um, last amazing jewels for everyone, how they can find you and anything we haven't said that you really, really want people to know. Yeah, well, first of all, because you're so um, gracious to have me as a guest, 
what I'd love for people to do is they just go to my website, robertrealpel.com, just my name. They'll actually be able to download the full digital version of the book as our gift to them for taking their time listening. And I will let them know though, it is, it does come with a caveat <laughs> because I didn't write the book for you to read it, put it on the shelf and make it shelf help. That's not why I wrote the book. Step number three, good, you got my joke. Step number three in the book is take action. And so I wrote it as a workbook and there's action steps all the way through. And I even say, did you do the last action? If not, stop reading right now, go back to the action before you read more. So I'd love for them to do that. And the parting words would be this. I believe that the greatest gift that anybody can give this planet, Dr. Fujian, is to be themselves. Show up for who you are. Because when you show up for yourself, who you are, you're either people are either going to like you for who you are or they're not. And they, if they like you for who you are, that's awesome. If they don't, that's awesome. Because how much time do we waste trying to get people to like us or try to be different so people will? Just yeah. be you and watch what the gift is that gives the world. I heard from you, don't stop proving your greatness, just own your greatness. And that's one of the things that I'm hearing from you. It was a yeah. joy to have you. I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, having a conversation with you. And so everyone go to robertriopel.com, get the book, Success Left the Clue, and work at it every, every single step of it. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The question of the week is from a lady who says, I'm 20 years old. And um, every time I get really, really upset, especially around uh, the relationship issues and my boyfriend does not call me immediately or I get very anxious about the issue of maybe losing him, I find myself eating. And at one point, um, I suddenly open my eyes and everything in the refrigerator is gone and I've gone through all the food and it's done in such an automatic way that I don't even realize it. I realize I start, but I just don't realize when I finish and I'm consumed with the thoughts. So it seems like it really triggers you when uh, your boyfriend acts in a particular way or that you assume that you're not going to be with him but it brings up a lot of the issues. Sometimes we have issues uh, that are from our parents and the way that we were raised. If there was any type of anxiety um, as we were growing up um, and we had learned that when we get anxious, the only way to calm ourselves was food. And, you know, we do that a lot with children. Um, parents, many times when somebody's upset, they offer them food. Food appears to be one of the concepts of socialization, being together, celebration, you know, when we um, we want to watch a movie, we'll get popcorn, we'll sit down and we'll eat. So eating um, as we grow up has created a lot of different meanings for us. So not only that it nurtures us as far as food and nutrients, but many times we've used this socially in our families and as a group in a way of a buffer uh, that it gives us something to do and it's together and we, uh, you know, enjoy the palate of our palate just enjoys like salt and sugar and fat together and it creates like a comforting way of as if we're taking care of ourselves. Not true all the time, because it depends on what you're eating, that whether you're going to take care of yourself or not. But the other side of it is it gets associated with some of the emotions. 
Um, where if I'm sad, I could eat my way and feel happy. Or if I'm angry, I could eat and not be angry anymore. Or it becomes a distraction for us. Um, so comfort food, it might associate with pleasure, um, comfort, uh, distraction, um, many other aspects. So it depends on what you see food as um, associated with beyond just nutrition that there is. So I can see where uh, this person is um, gets upset, gets fearful, and uh, the first thing they do is to go feed it and try to comfort it. And then at one point, they stop and they see that they are discomforted at this point. Their stomach hurts and they uh, kind of get disgusted with themselves. So the, what, what they wanted to use as a tool to comfort and create pleasure, now it has created more discomfort for them. So... And, one thing to look at is what are all the ways that I can also release my emotions versus stuff them inside. So releasing a fear might be that you could write a letter, you could do some reality check with what's going on. Remember what they said, check with them and see how they are and whether you could see you know, that the relationship is actually going well and it's you know, your fear are unfounded. Or if the fear are founded and there is something going on, then maybe we could face it, we could talk about it, we could see what it is that we could solve, we could move forward. So bringing whatever the emotion is and the message of the emotion, feeling it, containing it in our body, and then um, reality, doing reality check, talking to the person and finding out whether that fear is substantial or not, or if it's actual real, real or not. Then from there, creating a solution uh, for that relationship and moving forward. If that fear not only comes from this relationship, but it has a whole baggage of, you know, the way we were with our parents or our first love or kids who were at school, our friendships, and we've lost, and there's a grief and loss that needs to be handled from our childhood. And it's going back and looking at what were the memories? What did I make it mean for myself? What is it going on that I need to still clear? What did I generalize about myself or my or other people and kind of bringing all of those pieces together for us uh, in order to take care of ourselves and allowing food to be a part of reality which is out there for nutrition but we can use it for socialization and all other but to only stuff our feelings and not take not hear them run away from them and not take care of them is going to create a lot of more of destruction uh, for our life and doesn't really handle the original concept of is this relationship solid or not. So dealing with the issue on its own, uh, containing the emotions on its own, um, and then allowing food to be what, you know, as a vehicle of what it's supposed to be, is going to not only take care of you, give you the tools to handle things, do the reality check and handle the emotion. And even if there's something to handle from before, if you can do it yourself, do it with the um, awareness integration tools that you have um, from the book, or you could uh, you know, seek for therapy and have somebody work with you through those traumas to bring it out. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, and I am excited to have Dr. Susan Campbell with us. She is the author of 11 books on relationships and conflict resolution. She leads seminars internationally and has appeared on CNN, Newsnight, and Good Morning America. 
Dr. Campbell has also directed a think tank, run a nonprofit organization, consulted to Fortune 500 companies, and guest lectures at Harvard, Stanford, and UCLA business schools. She works with private clients through her relationship coaching practice and lives in Sonoma County, California. And you can find her at susancampbell.com. It is such a blessing and a joy to have you with us. Thank you, Fujin. And your latest book, From Triggered to Tranquil, is out. And uh, we want to discuss it today. So um, let's define trigger first. I think that if we could first uh, define trigger and tranquil, because I think every one of us has our own version of what those are. Great. So getting triggered means you have some kind of an automatic reaction to something that you either hear or don't hear when you wish you would or something you think or just something that's going on in your environment. So um, some upsetting stimulus creates something like um, a fight, flight, freeze, some version of fight, flight, freeze. So actually, the origin of these trigger reactions is a thing called the survival alarm system, which is in the amygdala area of the brain. So that's a kind of primitive part of the brain. And that's the part that gets triggered and says there's danger. So, so often in the primitive, well, in the primitive times, that was for physical survival. The reason you had to react quickly, because there might be a tiger jumping out at the bush, out of the bush. But now you hear a tone of voice, or you see a look on somebody's face that's perhaps an important person in your life. And you get one of those automatic reactions that comes from unfinished childhood emotional business, like not getting all your early emotional needs met. So triggers are actually a doorway into healing those. But just to define trigger reactions, it's things like getting angry, getting defensive, being judgmental just inside your own head. See, sometimes trigger reactions are not big. They're thought patterns like, why didn't that person do it my way? Or why didn't they do what would have been more comfortable for me? So trigger reactions show that there's a sensitivity in your emotional well-being, that your, your emotional well-being is kind of threatened. And so people need to learn how to deal with these because they happen to all of us. Yes, it does. And you also talk about learning the unique triggers that are, are our signature. And I think as you were talking about, and as I've worked also with clients for the past 30 years, you see that there are particular whether they're belief systems or experiences or a particular trauma that has those, uh, you know, is a consistent, like a reoccurring trigger that kind of ends up there or gets sourced by that. And those also become um, like our signature uh, alliance with the trigger. Can you share a little bit about how we can define those for ourselves as you've shared it in the book? Yeah. So uh, one of the things, one of the purposes of this book is to help you notice that you're getting triggered quicker. So I teach this trigger signature exercise where you reflect on an event that triggered you and you recall 
What was my behavior? Did I act out or did I get kind of small and shrink, that sort of thing? What was my thought? Was I, was I, or was I thinking anything? Did I think something like, I'm not important to this person, my voice doesn't matter, that sort of thing? Because that'll, that'll indicate where your emotional pain is that needs healing. Um, so that'll get to what your core fear is that is also a big part of your trigger signature. You'll also look at what happens in your body. So it's just a kind of a quick scan of past trigger events where you analyze what did I think, feel, and do. And you notice a pattern and you notice there's a theme. Gee, I in certain kinds of situations, I always clam up and can't talk. Or I just feel like, oh, this person's not hearing me. So there's some little story behind our trigger signature like that. And knowing this, knowing your trigger signature gives you tremendous power to go, oh, here this is again. This is a time maybe I should be more mindful, like slow down, calm my nervous system, pay better attention. And um, after witnessing that, uh, becoming aware of that, then there's a sense of kind of responsibility of me regulating myself because as I see what's going on what type of emotions or thoughts or behaviors are showing up if I can uh, look at the maybe the reality check of the here and now what's going on and yes it's not a tiger by the way no it's down a little bit and then it's the point of how do I get myself and regulate those emotions so that I come back into uh, you know cal calm down my amygdala and and, and deal with what the reality is. So uh, share with us um, as you as you have in your book, uh, what are some of the ways and the paths to regulating our emotions? Well, once we can accept that triggering happens and it probably happens to almost everybody and doing this, the trigger signature exercise helps you accept it because you see, oh, okay, that's, you know, and I see other people having the same reactions then you're going to be more willing to take on the responsibility of self-regulation. If there's a trigger in my world, if I'm triggered, it's my responsibility. That's a little hard at first. So to get to, I mean, self-regulation ought to be easy. We just go, oh, I'm triggered. Let me slow down. Let me pay attention to my breathing, my body sensations. Like right now with you, I'm feeling the support of my chair, all of these kind of things are very grounding and they bring you right into the present where you go, oh, in this present moment, there's no tiger. And actually now that I've calmed myself, my prefrontal cortex is back online. You know, it was kind of deconditioned by the powerful chemicals that the amygdala throws out. But once you calm yourself down, your higher brain comes back online and you can remember, oh, We've had this conversation or this fight many times and it never goes anywhere until somebody slows down, takes a few breaths and starts to repeat back what the other person said or speak about my tender feelings instead of that accusing voice that I often have when I'm triggered. So we start to remember what worked last time once we get back into our prefrontal cortex. Can you share about five uh, steps in doing mm -hmm. that? 
So one was admitting and accepting your insecurities, becoming aware of uh, mm -hmm. the triggers that you have and in what ways that you have that. And you also in the book talk about different types of relationships, which particularly trigger mm -hmm. us in a particular way, like in an intimate relationship, I might have a particular trigger, which would be different, maybe at work or maybe at, you know, with children or other people. You talk about learning your unique trigger signature and then pausing to regulate yourself. And then there's two more, which is yeah. sensation and emotions and then repairing and clearing the air. So um, let's go to the being with sensations and emotions. Okay, so let's say in an intimate relationship, because it's it's often a little different how you do things in a, like in an intimate relationship. I teach partners, and and you could have this in a, a close work relationship too. You need to have sort of a pause agreement that you'll both take some time for yourself, and during that time for yourself, self calming, self regulating you start to inquire. So the next step after accepting and knowing your trigger signature and pausing the fourth of the five steps is inquiring into what was that about? What was that big reaction about? Or why did I freeze and couldn't speak? Why did I feel like, you know, explaining myself? Why do I always have to over explain myself? So you, you, start with any of those kind of questions or some feeling that was triggered and you just breathe and make space for that. So learning how to be a good mother to yourself is the next step. And I have several practices that show you how to open up a compassionate space inside your own attention. So how to develop a little more of the witness because healing really can't happen until you're able to not just be in your feelings, but witness your feelings so that you can like help yourself along in this journey. So I teach um, that kind of self-inquiry. I call it compassionate self-inquiry. But the basic idea is taking that painful part of you that's kind of afraid and reassuring that, that there's nothing wrong with you. I'm here with you. I'll be with you. You're not alone. And it somehow eases people's fear of emotional pain because it's the fear of emotional pain that really drives all this kind of stuff. So the, so the idea really is to expand your capacity for holding a charge, for holding intensity, not to overwhelm yourself, but to just gradually expand your capacity to live life to the fullest. I think one of the things you said, I um, it's it's really jewel um, where I've watched people have the ability to handle emotions, but the fear of the emotion is much harder than feeling the emotion. So it's interesting. It's like the person is depressed, and we we're trying to work to go into experiencing the sadness, and they're standing mm -hmm. on almost like the top of a well, and they're like afraid of going and experiencing the sadness that they've, they've already lived through all the day, all day, uh, all their lifetime. But it's almost that fear. And it's like they, they jump and they let go of the fear. And then it's like the rest is actually easy because you've experienced it all day. It's not beyond what you've experienced. But what you say was very important and that people uh, 
hold this fear of not having the ability to versus the reality of the ability to. Yeah. And I want to say, though, Fujian, that you have to work with yourself kind of gradually. Uh, like, let's say you're um, afraid of feeling sad or you're afraid of feeling some other kind of pain. We dip into it little by little and then we regulate ourselves and come out and then we dip into it a little more. So um, this is a complete self-therapy toolkit, this book. Yes. And then you talk about repairing and clearing the air, which is the last yeah. of the five steps. Yes, and um, repairing and clearing the air is what you do once you've fully understood where that trigger sensitivity comes from. Like, and I, I give people a list of all the different fears that could possibly happen you know, to people like fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear that my voice doesn't matter, fear of looking foolish. You know, I mean, the humans have sort of the same general collection of, of maybe about 15, I call them the favorite fears. And helping you get some language for talking about your fears. When you do a repair, you go back and say, you know, I'm I'm sorry I walked out while you were talking, or I'm so, I'm sorry I, I said that insulting thing, that I was triggered. And so you name, you know, you take responsibility. I was triggered. That was probably my fear of being blamed coming up. And then you'll say, I'm 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 sorry I said that. It depends on what the behavior was. There's there's optional ways to um, repair. Or you can say you didn't deserve that, or you can leave that part out. You might even say that it reminded me of when my father used to, you know, when you were talking to me, it reminded me of my father used to criticize me and I just couldn't stand it. But I, I've let go of that now and I'm, I'm not holding you responsible for my feelings. I think I just need some help feeling that I'm not being made wrong or not being blamed. And so you'll just kind of say what your vulnerability is. Like, I need some help with my fear that I'm the wrong one or the bad one. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things about your book that is uh, brilliant is saying that the, the triggers are all going to be there and it's for all of us. It's not like if you're a trigger, there's something wrong with you. This is just something that happens to all of us. However, the beauty of it is also that we could utilize these as um, a learning tool, a, an awareness tool, something that we could see what are some of the things, whether there were traumas or, you know, there were situations that we turned them to be some other way, um, that life wants us to heal and become whole. And that's what you say in the book where life is there. And if we're getting triggered by it is because there's something in here that needs to be healed, that needs to become a whole, that is somehow separated for some reason. And it needs to be that. And it's just more like a doorbell is like rings and says, hello, handle yeah. it for me. Yeah. Getting triggered is actually a blessing because it is like that doorbell, like, hello, there's some unfinished business here. And here are some tools for completing your unfinished business, like childhood emotional needs that weren't met. Here's a way to love yourself back into wholeness. Yes. Um, when we're talking about getting triggered, um, I think that the most 
important factor is to, to look at, as you have done in the book, to look at the main areas of life and see how we're constantly getting triggered in those areas um, and attempt to see what maybe like the belief systems or like you said, memories or things that have gotten those created. Because it seems like when we find ourselves into one path, it just, you know, it's like a revolving door. If we don't attend to it, the same type of triggers keeps getting created. So if you're getting, you know, you're having these triggers in one type of intimate relationship, you can leave this, but you go to the next one, same triggers are going to show up no matter who you're going to go be with. Or if you have this in a work setting, and if you're not handling those triggers, like if you have, you know, superiority, inferiority conversation for yourself, there's always going to be somebody who's going to be your boss. And even if you have your own business, I've heard people like, I'm just going to have my own business because I don't want to have a boss. And then they, every single customer becomes your boss. <laughs> so you're going to have that trigger anyway, again and again. So instead of looking at the outside world and being pissed and upset at why is the outside world constantly triggering me? It's looking at coming back to that space. Now, at the beginning of the show, I said, let's, let's define trigger, but let's also define tranquil. So mm -hmm. what, where is it after doing all this? Where is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, when you're calm and relaxed, of course, we know that's tranquil. But in addition to that, once your prefrontal cortex is back online, you're friendlier toward the other person, even if they said something that was a kind of uh, sharp or quick. If you're tranquil, you give the person the benefit of the doubt. You're more, your consciousness is more spacious. You're more able to empathize. You're more able to listen with an open mind. So all of that is evidence that you've gone from triggered to tranquil. And that's probably what most of us want. Yes, so the tranquil and, and the way that you're also saying it is not that we're always going to be on the um space, but no. it's also the aspect of that we have a freedom in our brain to choose. We have this freedom that we're not caught into a certain emotion or a belief system that is holding us, but we have the freedom of choosing reality testing, looking at what the relationship is out there, looking at what's actually needed at that moment in the concept of the relatedness that we need. And, um, and to kind of like have that uh, be a, a, how we run our life versus uh, being reactive from the triggers consistently. No, that's exactly right. Um we're present. Another word is present, aware, doesn't mean that you're not excited about something or like super happy. It doesn't mean ohm, you know. So just what you said, I agree with everything. Everyone, Susan, Dr. Susan Campbell from Trigger to Tranquil. Dr. Campbell, um, is there anything we haven't shared that you want our listeners to know? Well, I want people to know that the second half of the book, you and I just talked about the first half, the second half of the book deals with how to apply these tools as a parent with your children, uh, coworkers, friends, in groups that you may either lead or be a member of. And then the final chapter is, what if I get triggered by the world situation? Because there's so many uncertainties coming at us right now in our world. So um, second half of the book is all about unique applications for these tools. 
Yes, when you said that, I I, I looked at that chapter, and it's more of, um, especially now, I think that a lot more because of the COVID, because of politicizing, you know, a lot of this matter, especially United States and the world, I think that um, there's much more of a sudden trigger and extreme uh, reactions when it shows up where, where that I've ever seen in my life. So, uh, you know, people have the, com uh, the social media to be able to just say whatever they want to say. And then with the one note, you get all of these people getting triggered and sharing and each sharing triggers another person. So you're absolutely right that uh, the world right now with all uh, the, the means that it has to um, to come to us, it triggers us consistently all day. So there's lots of opportunities for inner practice, for really getting to know yourself, because that's really what I think this life journey is about, is knowing yourself as deeply as possible. So you can be freer to make the absolute best choice in every given moment. I said that I wanted to, uh, I intend to be um, a, a Teflon, which nothing sticks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending the time and being with us. Oh, I would like to mention that if people go to SusanCampbell.com and subscribe to my newsletter, I have a free one hour monthly call where I lead some of these kind of exercises that you and I have talked about today. So um, to just right on the homepage, you'll see where to subscribe to my newsletter. That is beautiful. SusanCampbell.com. Um, everyone go and also get the book from Triggered to Tranquil. Dr. Campbell, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Fujian. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.